Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, everyone. Ron Spomer back with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. And I got some questions last time I did a piece and I talked about the Ackley Improved cartridge. The 280 Ackley Improved is really popular now. This is the book you might want to try to find. We have a link here on our site. Just go below into the links and you can buy this book and read all about what P.O. Ackley was doing. A lot of great information from this uh, this gunmaker, gunsmith, wildcatter. This is the guy who invented the Ackley Improved cartridges. So this is stuff from back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and this man really knew his stuff. So you can learn a lot about cartridges, rifles, pressures, ballistics, and all that good stuff from this little handbook. You might want to check it out. Now, we have got questions and answers, as usual, and the team has pulled them up for me. And the first one here is from someone called Holly5223. Hey, Ron, I once saw a video from some government conservation conservationist saying people shouldn't kill coyotes. Her justification was that it ends up being one minus one equals one because whenever you kill one, another one just takes its place. What's your opinion on that? Well, I think the math is off a little bit, that's for sure. But I know what she's driving at. It's something called a predator sink. Obviously, if you have 100 coyotes and you shoot one, you only have 99 left. But what I think this conservationist was saying was that if you shoot a coyote in your area, you have opened up that territory and the animals that are in it that the coyote wants to eat, that's now open up like you just open the doors to the supermarket and everything's free. You're going to rush in and get it. So some coyote who's competing with all the other coyotes out in the territories, having a hard time finding some bunny rabbits that haven't been eaten yet or some fawns that haven't been eaten yet, discovers that there's no more scent markers over in this other bordering territory where someone has shot a coyote. So I just move in there and by golly, it's like paradise, no competition, lots of food. So that I think is what she's referring to. 
Now, another part of this is a coyote's reproductive system. Most animals and plants have ways of responding to hard times by producing more seed, more offspring. For instance, uh, a plant notices that there's not much moisture this year. It's going to be a hard time to grow vegetation. So instead of growing a lot of leaves and getting bigger, they put out more seed just in case the drought kills them. Then they've at least left some seed to start new plants. What coyotes seem to do when there's a lot of hunting and trapping pressure and the population is down, or even after mange or some sort of a disease that sweeps through the flock, <laughs> they will increase production. I guess the females, I don't think they think about this. It's just what happens in nature. They are able to produce bigger litters. So instead of five pups or six pups, they might have 10 or 12. And that replaces what's been taking. That's something else she could have been referring to. Um, My opinion on all of this is that, yeah, technically, biologically, that stuff is true. But at the same time, I do think it is possible to reduce a predator population to the point where you've benefited a hard put upon prey population. And this has been documented many, many times. It's expensive, especially if you're hiring government people to do it, which we regularly do in this country. But it can be done. Now, I can remember an incident at least one with a uh, remnant population of a subspecies of pronghorn down in the Sonoran Desert. must have been along the Mexican border, Arizona, or someplace like this. They just couldn't get the population built back up. Did some research and discovered that the coyotes were taking so many fawns that there was no recruitment. So if they reduce the coyote population, suddenly the fawns survive, the population of pronghorns increase, then the coyotes can come back in and they're not going to reduce that population to the point where it is almost gone. Similar one was out in California in the mountain ranges where they were trying to reestablish good populations of California bighorn sheep. And they found out that an overabundance of cougar were killing them all off. And they literally did wipe out the entire flock. I don't know if this happened more than once, but I remember reading about it years ago. Things like this have happened many, many times. It's just classic stuff. The predator population gets too high. The prey population gets too low. Back in the day, there was enough fudge factor that didn't really matter that much because the entire continent was filled with wildlife. And if they cleaned it out in a small area, there were things on the outside that could filter back in and renew a population. Well, these days, we have fragmented habitat so much that that's not always possible. Now, coyotes do really well. They just crisscross a country. You know, they used to be primarily west of the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers. They were a western wild canid. Now they're found in the northeast. I've even seen them down in Tampa Bay in Florida. They're everywhere and they're extremely successful because they're not just carnivores, they're omnivores. They'll squeak by on vegetation. They'll eat corn, they'll eat probably wheat. I know they eat watermelons and house cats and dogs and junk food in town and they just do remarkably well. Unfortunately, a lot of their prey species don't because we have usurped the habitat of the spray of the prey species, especially ground nesting birds and small mammals. I don't know if you've noticed this in your area, but in most places, pheasant population is down. Grouse population is down. Quail are way down. Cottontails are down in a lot of areas. Now, some of that are diseases, 
But a lot of it is that we've just taken the best habitat for those animals and ruined it. Whereas the coyote can live with minimal protection. He doesn't have a lot of bigger predators trying to eat him. But the little guys do. Skunks, raccoons, red fox, bobcats, all the aerial predatory birds that might take them. Humans and their dogs. House cats. Oh my God, they take billions of birds a year. So there's increased predation from many sources. And there's just... Less and less habitat to support the small animals and birds that need good ground cover. They don't need mowed bluegrass lawns. They don't need plowed bean fields sitting in dirt all winter. We just take away their habitat and we increase predator habitat. So I think it is important that we try to strike a balance. So you can kind of take the conservationist, environmentalist's ideal of Predators and prey balance themselves out, but I don't think it applies all that well anymore with all the changes to the landscape that we have made. It is our responsibility. We caused this imbalance. We need to correct it. And if we're not going to return lots and lots of habitat back to wild species, we're going to have to reduce the predator population that we have enhanced, even if it's inadvertently. And it is. One one more, I can go on and on with this stuff pretty obviously, but this is the classic case. The northern plains, the pothole wetland region that's known as the duck factory. That used to be tall grass to mid grass to short grass prairie with lots of pothole wetlands in it that were created by the glacial retreat. So you've got these basins that fill up with rainwater, snow water, and they're surrounded by grass, 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 and more grass. What was on that grass? Bison, some elk, whitetails, mule deer, pronghorn, a few coyotes, lots of wolves because that was the number one apex predator taking out the bison. And there weren't much uh, of the smaller predators. Red foxes probably didn't exist there. Badgers, yes, a few skunks, but most of the small predators did not have a home because it was all grassland. There weren't trees, hollow trees for raccoons to be in and opossums, no such thing. So they couldn't make it. It's just grass, grass, grass everywhere, unless you had a burrow underground. And that's why he had skunks and badgers. So the coyotes were eating the leftovers from the wolf kills on the bison primarily. And the ducks were able to go out and nest in the grass and live in those wetlands in extreme abundance. They were something like 400 million waterfowl living on this continent back then. There just wasn't a good habitat for predators. Along comes man. Drain wetlands, 50% of them gone. Carve up all the grasslands, plow them up into farm fields. Suddenly all that protective grass cover for the small animals and birds and ducks are gone. And we bring in raccoons and possums and red fox and more skunks. Now we didn't necessarily drag them in and turn them loose. They followed us in because we provide habitat for them. Culverts, rock piles, old barns, old farm equipment under which they can hide. Planted trees, hollow trees, raccoons living up in trees that never used to be out on those prairies and red-tailed hawks and all the rest of them. Yes, those are natural predators. They belong on the landscape, but we changed the landscape. And now we've got fewer grasslands, fewer wetlands, fewer ducks. Big surprise. A lot more raccoons and opossums and skunks and badgers and coyotes and foxes. We benefit the predators. It's our responsibility to strike a balance. Whew, boy, that was quick, wasn't it? <laughs> Thanks for the question there, Holly. It's a contentious issue with some people, but I think it's the important one that we really all need to understand. I'm not anti-predator, but I'm not 
worshiping predators either. They, uh, they need to be controlled along with everything else that gets a little bit out of control. All right, let's see what other kind of questions we have here. Ah, there's one from Randall, and Randall asks, what bullet are you shooting in your 375 H&H in Africa? Good question. I'm going to be shooting a 270 grain hammer hunter, all copper bullet. I'm pretty excited about this one. I've just heard a lot of good reports on it. And if you've been following my stuff, you will note that I have not been all that crazy about the performance of a 375 H&H in South America, in Africa, mine, my friends, different hunters in camp. I've just always seen a lot of problems on taking animals cleanly with the 375 H and H. And I've posted several things about it and people say, oh, you dummy, you just don't shoot straight and you need to hit them in the right place. But others would say, okay, I'm gonna trust that you did put the bullet in the right place. Perhaps you're using too hard of a bullet or it was going too slowly to open up adequately, blah, blah, blah. That seems like the most reasonable explanation. So that's why I'm going from a 300 grain bullet down to a 270 grain bullet. I'll get my velocities a little bit higher. There's a good hollow in the nose of that hammer bullet. So I think it's going to open up quickly. It is designed to shed some petals. So we're going to get a little bit of dispersion of the particles there to rip more tissue. And it apparently, according to the hammer bullet guys, it's just really devastating the way it delivers energy through the target. We're going to find out, but that's what I'm going to be using. Good question, Randall. Thank you. Jason asks, I love watching your videos. What brand shirts do you wear? Oh, boy, boy, this is going to be a garment question, I think. Are they wool? I'm a big fan of wool shirts. Oh, wow. All right. Well, I can answer this ballistic question really quickly. (laughs) There's no ballistics involved. Jason, I I just have a bunch of different shirts. I don't have one particular kind. Um, Whatever looks good on the rack at the time. If I need a new shirt, I'll pick it up. Mostly cotton. And in the winter, wool. I have uh, last couple of years, I've had some heavy flannel. I think they were either Orvis shirts or L.L. Bean, and they were remaindered or something at Costco. I was going through Costco and I saw these really good, boldly patterned, classic uh, flannel shirts. And they were inexpensive and really thick. And I tried one and liked it so much, I picked up several more. So I've been wearing those a lot during my winter productions. But when I am outdoors and hunting, I do like wool and I wear it a lot uh, just because, you know, it's wool. You get wet and you still stay warm. It's got some unique properties. And the merino wool shirts don't have the scratch of the old traditional wool. That's what really swung me over. A little more expensive, but man, they are soft. And I wear my long underwear, you know, the base layer they call it these days. We called it long underwear back in my day. And I wear it there because it does not itch and it's just remarkably smooth against my skin and keeps me warmer. And again, you, you can get sweaty and it doesn't feel clammy. So yes, I do like wool. But no particular brand name on the shirts. I do, when I hunt Africa in the hot weather, take tag shirts, T-A-G. I really like those. They're made by Africans. uh, So they're getting some good employment in a business over there. And just a perfect garment for hunting in Africa. All right, Dan's has a question about uh, reloading. I don't reload yet, but I'm thinking about getting into it. I've kept all my brass, but I've used different manufacturers as recent times have dictated. If I use the same powder, loads, and projectiles, does it matter if the brass is mixed? Yeah, it matters. Brass is not all the same. Each manufacturer may make it slightly thicker or thinner. They may have a slightly wider web down at the head. 
Um, so the volume will be different. And the hardness could be a little bit different too of that brass case. So they may not they may not flare out as easily. Uh, they may not be as strong, et cetera, et cetera. It's just better to maintain consistency. In fact, serious hand loaders looking for real accuracy not only stick with the same brand of brass, but they try to stick with the same lot, the manufacturing lot, to minimize those changes and differences. And one way to do that is to weigh each piece. This might sound crazy to people who just shoot and run, but you collect your brass, you get back home, and you weigh them within a grain or two to get the same weight. That suggests that the wall thickness and the head and everything else are the same, so you're going to have consistency. You should get a little better accuracy. That's mostly for target shooters. But if you're having fun as a hand loader, and most of us do, you go through these stages where you try to do everything you possibly can to make the absolute finest ammunition. <laughs> and it's really kind of fun. Might be overdoing it, but it's still fun. So yes, definitely same brand ammo for your loads. Otherwise, you could get some significant differences in your muzzle velocities. All right, that was a real good question. Ah, oh, this one is a request not to use the name, but the question is, I reside in Norway, and the main game I hunt is large birds. This is cool. Uh, Western Capricale, that's the world's biggest grouse. It's like a small turkey, maybe 10, even 12 pounds. Uh, and black grouse, and those are roughly like our sharp-tailed grouse. Grassland bird into the brushlands, about that same size, probably two pounds. Yeah, pound and three quarters maybe. At any rate, in recent years, Norway has followed other countries in Scandinavia by legalizing hunting for these birds with rifles. Previously, only shotguns were allowed. So, what would be the most ideal cartridge for this style of hunting? Ha! Yeah, you're asking me a question that's based on my conjecture here. Because I have not hunted these grouse with a rifle. I've even hunted grouse over here with a rifle, except for some forest grouse in some states like Idaho. You can use a 22 or heck, we even use a 270 to take a grouse for camp dinner. It's long been a tradition over here. But I understand over in Europe, there are a lot of folks who hunt these big grouse, especially that Capricale with rifles. So what you've got to consider is how close are you going to be able to get to these birds? And then are you going to take a body shot or a head shot? I would think if you're going to go for precision and take a headshot, you're going to want a pretty small cartridge or bullet. Uh, but you're going to want it to be pretty flat shooting. And if you've got significant winds, that's going to be a problem with your bullet getting blown off. So you're really going to have to be precise here. I would go with some kind of a 22 center fire and a long high BC bullet to minimize that wind deflection. So think you could probably do it fine with a 223, but a 22250, I think, would be better, or, or a 220 Swift for these headshots. Now, if you're going to go for a body shot, ooh, I just think you're going to get a lot of meat damage. You're going to have to make it a high shot at the butt of the wing so you hit the back where there's not much meat and not the breast. You just hit the breast and you destroy a lot of meat, and you really don't hit the vitals because it's up above the breast between the backbone and the 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 V bone of the breast. So that's a, that's a tough one there. I think you're going to want almost a solid bullet or an extremely controlled expansion kind of bullet. That's not going to open up too much. And then the other thing is you might want to reduce that impact velocity because that's what creates that explosive effect that ruins meat. You're going to want a slower impact bullet 
which suggests you go down in power on your 22s to a 22 Hornet or gosh, what else could you go? You could go with a 24 caliber of some kind, but boy, there you're looking at some pretty high velocities with factory ammunition, even a 243 Winchester, 2,800 to 3,000 feet per second. I think you're going to tear things up. I did once shoot a turkey with a 243 on that wing butt shot, and I still ruined a lot of meat on that one, so wouldn't recommend that. That, uh, the best I can recommend now, all of you Scandinavians out there who have experience with this, I invite you to write in and let me know what your experiences have been because you might have a lot better advice for this gentleman than I've got. But that's my take on it. Thanks for asking the question. We will see you next time if we get some better answers from the Scandinavians who have hunted uh, the Capricalian black grouse with rifles. Oh, by the way, black grouse, I would just use a 22 long rifle. It's a really small bird, and I think you ought to be able, be able to get close enough. I photographed those birds and hunted them one time in Russia. And they built blinds, brush blinds. And we sat in that brush blind in the dark and waited until they started dancing around us on their lek, which doesn't sound very sporting, but that's their tradition over there. They just are harvesting their game and you wait until it's light enough to shoot and you pick a bird that's really close and you shoot it. So you can do that with a 22 rimfire pretty easily, I should think. The capercaillie, by the way, is a really fun hunt. That bird, the male, gets way up in a tree to roost. And at first light, and we're talking like two in the morning, he starts to call. And when he calls, he kind of throws his head back and he closes his eyes at a certain part of his call. At least that's what they tell me. So what you do is you listen in the woods for this sound. And this is a rough approximation of it, as I remember it. When they go to that part is when they're supposed to have their eyes closed. And that's when you move closer. <laughs> so I did this with this Russian guide. It was really fun. We're out in the pitch black and we're waiting for it to get a little bit light. And I hear this. And I thought, that sounds unusual. I wonder if that's one of them. So I elbowed my guide said, you hear that? That's all I was doing, just the look, look parts, sort of waking up. And he said, oh, yeah, that is one. And we waited for a few more look, look until he finally went into the. And then we got up and we started moving. Well, you could take two, maybe three steps toward the sound. And you just kept doing that. He called probably every, I don't remember what the timing on it was, every minute, maybe every 30 seconds to a minute, he would go through that call sequence and we take a couple steps. And it was really challenging because you would get up on top of a log and he'd stop. The, you'd have to freeze with one leg on the log and one of them balancing in the air. It was pretty cool. And it was pretty dark out yet too. But we eventually got up underneath that tree to where we had maybe a 30 yard shot. And there he was. And you just Shoot him in the head, sort of like calling a turkey, only he's doing the calling and you're doing the stalking. Pretty exciting stuff. So that's the Capper Kaylee. So I guess you could use the 22 in that situation too and just shoot him in the head. Cool. I think I want to go with you. All right. Here's another request not to use a name. I live in Alaska. We got people up in the North Country who don't want their names out here. <laughs> I live in Alaska and I've taken all matter of game with a Hawa Alpine in 308 Winchester. I've been satisfied with its performance on moose, sheep, black bears, and caribou, but I want a larger cartridge for an upcoming Fognac Island elk hunt. Aha. I feel confident that the 308 will take an elk, 
but I want a larger gun for possible bear encounters. Yeah, big brown bears there. And I also want it for future bear hunts. So what do you recommend uh, for a cartridge rifle and weight? Oh, boy. I really am impressed by the 338 Win Mag as a good a good option there. It's not probably the ideal one for bear, but a lot of guys use it. A friend of mine used one on bear, one shot, had his bear. Uh, another fellow was using it. A guide actually is backing up a hunter who I think was using a 416 Remington Magnum. And he shot this big bear and then the guide opened up with his 338 to finish him off. So it's mostly the right bullet in the right place. But once again, if you surprise a bear in thick brush or something and it's just right there in your face, I think the harder you hit him, the better chances you have of slowing him or at least getting to veer off course while you finish him off. So you might want something bigger. Question is, what kind of recoil can you take and still shoot well? 416s, I think, are a good option. 416 Ruger, 416 Rem Mag, the Rigby. Um, there's a 416 Weatherby that's really fast and powerful. But then you're looking at rifle weight and length, and you know what it's like hunting in thick, brushy country like a Fognac Island with a long-barreled rifle. Probably don't want to do it. You want something fairly short. So I would be looking at one of the shorter uh, big cartridges, maybe the 4570. You know, it's not a long-range cartridge, but I don't know if a Fognac, if you can get high enough to get out of the forest up into the alpine zone on a Fognac where you could have longer shots or down along a beach, you could probably have a long one. Once again, I think that 338 Win Mag fits right in there. Another one, of course, to consider is a 375 H and H, but there again, you probably need at least 24 inch barrel on it and a fairly heavy rifle to tame that recoil. So, rifle weight is kind of up to you how strong you are, what kind of shape you're in, um, and what kind of recoil you can take. But I've always liked lighter rifles, and I don't have a big problem with recoil, so I've learned or train myself to handle it. So I would probably go with a lighter weight rifle. Now, another option you can go with is to use a lighter caliber. Just use a long, heavy, uh, controlled expansion bullet in it. So even if it's a 270 or your 308, just stick a 200 grain hand load on that thing. You can't fight much for 308 win ammunition from the factories that have good 200 grain bullets on it, but you could hand load some. And then you've got a long bullet that's going to continue driving deep, uh, carry pretty good energy. It's a good option, but yeah, if you really want the best possible bear protection, you want to go big. You want to go 40, 41, 44, 45. Somewhere up in there. I know I didn't exactly nail it down for you, but, you know, this is a big question. You're going to have to answer it for yourself because I don't want you coming back to me all ripped and clut up by saying, hey, you gave me a bum steer on that. It didn't stop that bear, but he stopped me. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. So do your research before you make your choice. Boy, nobody wants to be identified today. Here's another request to not use a name. But this person at least didn't live in the North Country or doesn't confess to it at any rate. What are your thoughts on the 308 Marlin Express? Oh, man, my thoughts are I don't know enough about the 308 Marlin Express to give you a really good opinion. I believe this was a creation uh, for the Marlin Lever Action Rifle that was supposed to give you roughly 308 Winchester performance in a lever action. But I don't remember if they were using a trick bullet in that or not. I don't think so. Because if it's a lever action, unless you've got twist 
uh, tubular magazine, and those were made years and years ago. I forgot who did them, but it was kind of a cool idea. They put a spiral in the magazine so that each cartridge was off-center from the one behind it, so you never longer had, well, I can show you right here, you no longer had that problem of bullets residing one against the other like this and the possibility of a sharply tipped bullet acting like a firing pin during recoil. A lot of people say that doesn't happen and there's no evidence and maybe not, but that's the standard. If you end up with a lever action with a tubular magazine, you're going to have blunt bullets. So, and I'm sure Marlin didn't make that twisty barrel, but you can see the idea of the twist in the barrel would be that there's enough spiral that this cartridge would be over here and the other one would be sitting against it like this, maybe just a little bit off the primer. And you could use sharply tipped bullets, but I don't think that was the Marlin Express. I think that was merely the 308 Winchester. And, uh, you know, that's not a 3030. You've got a lot more powder in it. So you were able to use essentially a 308 Winchester in a Marlin lever action rifle, but you were still stuck with those blunt or round nose bullets. That's the best I know about it. I might be way off, but I think that was it. All right, and number seven. Oh my gosh, nobody wants to be identified today. No name on this one either. But the question is, do you think the antimony shortage will drive all rifle bullets to copper? What impact will that have on shotgunning and the 22 long rifle rimfire and all the black powder shooters. Oh man, I didn't know there was an antimony shortage. I did know that most antimony is imported from China. And these days, anything that's coming from China, we're, well, they've got us over the barrel. If we're getting all of our antimony there, my goodness, no wonder the price is up. Now, I, I do know that Idaho has some stibnite mines. Stibnite is kind of your base uh, mineral that uh, they get antimony from. And antimony is used in lead to harden it. I don't know what they put 5% in or, or something, but you got a nice soft lead in a bullet and it, it expands too much. So you harden it up, putting some antimony in it. So if you can no longer get that, you need a harder bullet. What are you going to do? Going to all go to copper bullets? Well, sure, that's certainly a possibility. Fortunately, the copper bullets today are just outstanding in their performance. I mean, they expand so reliably and so well and so wide. It's just remarkable what they can do. So that might be the solution. Um, or we're going to have to open up some more stibnite mines and, and mine the material. But you know how that goes in this country. It'd probably take you 20 years of various uh, government red tape forms to fill out and everything else. And there's all the complaining about mines and stuff and ruining habitat up in the wilderness and all the usual stuff. But this is modern life. We need products to do what we do. So unless we give up doing what we do and making the things that we need, we're going to have to get the materials somewhere else or find substitutes. And I think, fortunately, copper is a good substitute. Now, shotgunning, you're looking at chilled shot. Now, if you're a shotgunner, you probably know that basic lead shot is just soft, pure lead. Um, and they try to keep it perfectly round because it flies better than get winging off from planing on a scoured flat side. That's why they put plastic shot cups in shotguns. Well, if you harden that lead, they call it chilled lead shot. Put a little bit of antimony in there and you harden it up. They stay rounder better and you get better patterns. These days, so much of the shot shells have gone to steel or bismuth or tungsten that I don't know if this is a huge issue anymore. 
And more and more states are mandating that you use something other than lead shot. So they've got good solutions. They're more expensive, but at least we've got good effective shells for shotgunning. The 22 long rifle is problematic because that the whole thing was designed around a lead bullet. And that's really, I don't think, a problem with the antimony because I don't know that they use really hard lead. 22 shoots at such a low velocity that you don't get the lead stripping from high velocity the way you do with faster cartridges. Um, so I think they just use pure lead, and that shouldn't be a problem. But there is the issue of shooting lead and this push to get rid of it in the environment. I think that's going to be ongoing. Um, and there are not a lot of great opportunities for better projectile materials in a 22 rimfire that I've seen. I'm wondering if copper might work. They do have some of these centered bullets, but they're fairly light. I've shot some and I've got good accuracy out of them. They usually call them green something or other. CCI has some. I've seen some Winchester. And they'll work at relatively close ranges. So I don't have an issue using those for, say, head shooting squirrels and cottontails for dinner. But if you want to stretch out, those bullets are just too light to keep going. Your ballistic coefficient really poor on those things. So I'm not really sure what's going to happen there, but there's a challenge for our ammunition companies and our bullet manufacturers to come up with something. But for now, antimony shortage, I tell you what, it's getting hard, guys, this day and age. Your primer shortages, powder shortages, <laughs> ammunition shortages, jeez. We've got our challenges ahead of us, but I think we'll persevere. Good old Yankee ingenuity. We'll come up with something. And the next question is, what time are you going to shut up <laughs> right now? <laughs> because I just ran out of questions. Looks like we had about eight of them in there. So thanks to the team for pulling the questions up. Thanks to you guys for sending those questions to us. And uh, thanks for asking about P.O. Ackley. Check out his book. I think you'll really like it. Until next time, this is Ron Spomer. I want to thank you guys for listening in. And you can catch us on Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel and RSO TV. Go to ronspomeroutdoors.com. That's our website. And you can sign up for RSO TV there and read a lot of our blogs. We put a lot of information out. If you still like to read, you can read it there. This is Ron Spomer. Hunt honest and shoot straight. Mm -hmm.